to say I'm pretty, pretty grateful. Last week we tackled something that's really complicated and really complex. And as I said, you know, I still, still have lots of questions about that. Don't, don't even have it um, clear in my mind exactly what's going on here. But this morning, it's a lot simpler. Um, there's a, there's a, a simple passage before us that I think will be far less confusing, um, but no less convicting and no less good for us. I will say, too, there is a plan. Um, if, if, these, if the idea uh, or if the question of, you know, wh what does salvation look like and uh, what are the inner workings of it and are, are you choosing God or is he choosing you or, you know, all the different, all these questions, right, around this idea, around predestination and all that, if that's interesting to you, um, soon we're going to have a time where we're going to meet kind of as a small group to just discuss this. Um, if that's something that intrigues you and you want to think about it more and talk about it more, um, we want to we want to do that because there are lots of questions that still we should try to answer if we can. Um, so we don't have a day or time or anything, but just know that it's coming. So if you think, oh, that's interesting to me, um, maybe spend some time reading, uh, you know, finding some verses and just trying to better understand, you know, uh, what what is going on there. So, you know, whatever. more details to come as to actually when we'll do it and all that. But if that's interesting to you, just keep that in mind. Um, so this morning, we're going to be kind of picking up in the middle of an argument, which is really hard to do because Paul doesn't just like change topics quickly. He has got, I mean, really from Rome, from the opening of this book until now, he has just been building one big, long argument, right? He just keeps adding layer after layer and he keeps weaving in new things and adding this and adding that. And so um, we're, we're going to jump in in the middle, but just kind of as a refresher, I mean, really quickly. We're going to go through and see where Paul is at, what he's been doing, how he's been building this, what are all the layers in which he has been adding on to the top, um, and then that will lead us to better understand what we're going to look at uh, this morning. So, um, and, and just so you, like, this is not unique to Rome, right? Paul is a very, very logical person. So he doesn't just write something. And he's not like, you know, we are when we were like 13 and ADD. It's like you write something and then like, oh, and then there's a squirrel. And then you write about this. And he's like changing your mind and new things are popping in. Like he has a plan and he's building this. And this is how he always operates. And so it does make it hard when we go through a book like we do on a Sunday morning where we're taking small chunks. Because we can't forget what we've looked at before or we miss part of what we're looking at currently. Um, and so with that being said, just like I said, really quickly... Let us look and kind of see the argument that he has built from the beginning. <coughs> so he starts the book off, right? And, and he says, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? That is one of those that's really famous, Romans 1.16, right? Um, what was it, Lecrae? He had that as like his motto for a long, long time. Um, 116 is all over his stuff. If you don't know Lecrae, you should. I mean, anyway, um, <laughs> And so it, this is like a really well-known and famous verse, right? I am, not ashamed, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe, right? And so then he goes and says, and he's trying to answer questions that he thinks are going to come up. And so he, Look, there is nobody who is without excuse. Everybody, by seeing all of the things that go on around us, by seeing, by seeing just nature itself, we should know and we do know that God exists. But we suppress that, right? We know that God is real. We know he is true. But in our sin, we don't want to believe that. Because to believe it means that we would have to change, right? So we suppress that truth, and we don't believe it. And we go on doing what we want to do, and God allows this to happen. He could, 
annihilate sin altogether, but he allows us to continue on um, in our sin. And that's what, that's what we see in Romans chapter 1. And then he builds on that argument. So he says, look, everybody knows who God is. And then he even says, look, if you could follow your own conscience, it would excuse you, right? Your, if your conscience will either accuse you or excuse you. It's a famous verse out of Romans chapter 2 where he says, if you could just live up to the standard that's in your own head, you would be righteous. But then what does he say in Romans 3? Nobody does, right? Nobody. Nobody is seeking after God. No one is righteous. No one understands, right? He gives this long diatribe, right? And he makes it very clear that we know who God is. We should be following him. We should be serving him. And nobody is doing it. Nobody is capable. That's a pretty dire place to be, right? This is not, this is not a, a heartwarming message up until the, the, that portion in chapter 3. But then, second half, right, he makes this statement. And this is another one, right? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? That's 321. So he says, look, everybody is a sinner. Nobody understands who God is. But... There is a Savior, and he has come. Now the Jews who are reading this book are saying, what are you talking about? Faith? That is not something that they understand. They understand the law. They understand obedience to that law, and that's how they find their righteousness. And then, and so Paul, when Paul says, look, you have to have faith in the Messiah, they don't get it. And so then the next chapter, what, is, what does Paul do? Abraham lived by faith, right? Abraham's the trump card. If, you ever, if he's ever talking to Jews and they're like, well, we don't get it. We don't believe you. He said, well, but the thing I'm telling you is true. That's how Abraham lived. And they're like, ah, oh, dang, we can't say anything to that. Abraham's the father, right? He's the one whom they always name. He's the guy, right? If you ever want to win an argument with the Jewish people, Paul just, Abraham did it. Look, this is how he lived. This is what, this is what was true for him. And then they have nothing to say back. There's no argument they can make back to him. And so Paul Builds out that argument, right? That Abraham had faith long before he was circumcised, long before the covenant came and the promise that of the law was ever there. Abraham lived by faith. And so Paul expounds upon the faith. He expounds upon what it does, right? It produces death to sin, life in God. We are no longer slaves to our sin. He goes through and he just painstakingly explains what does it look like to have faith and what are the results of faith in our life. And then in verse, in chapter 8, verse 1, right, this, this verse that we have talked about many, many, many times, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So not only are we saved through faith, but this faith is forever. It cannot be taken away. There is never, ever going to be condemnation for anybody who believes in Jesus. Now, up until that point, right, up until chapter 8, he has been talking about individuals and their salvation. What does it look like for you to have faith? And what does it look like? And so then when we get to chapter 9, it gets confusing because Paul adds this new thread into the conversation. Right? He adds a new piece to the puzzle. So it's not as if he drops talking about individual salvation, but now he is also talking about the salvation of nations. He weaves a new thread. So that's what I, that's what I mean when we say that Paul is a logical person. He is building one argument. If he spends eight chapters talking about salvation and faith and what that looks like in the individual, now when he starts talking about nations, it's not as if he has dropped that completely. But he's added a new thing. He's added a new element. And now he wants to talk about Israel. And he wants to talk about the nation. What does it look like for them to be saved? Right? And so he's, he's 
made this very controversial statement in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he wants to expound upon that, right? And he does that, and we looked at that over the last couple of weeks, and he says, look, some are going to be saved, some are not. The problem was that the Jews thought that all Jews would be saved and no Gentiles would be saved. That was their understanding. That's how they looked at the world. And Paul says, this is not true. It's never been true. And he gives us examples. He's going to give us more examples this morning. But it's never been true that God only cares about the Jews, that he only cared about saving them, and he didn't care anything about the Gentiles. And so Paul makes this statement, and he unpacks it. Some will be saved and some weren't. Right? And the truth is that some Jews are saved and some aren't. And some Gentiles are saved and some aren't. And this is what he wants. This is where we're at. He has made these kinds of statements. He has built this argument. And now he's come to the place where he wants to bring this out really, really strongly. He wants to be very clear about what is going on with the nation of Israel and what is going on with Gentiles. And so this is where we find ourselves. Right? In verse 25. So in 25 to 29, Paul is giving examples from Scripture to prove what he says is true. Now, he gets there because he was talking about, right, previous to this, he was talking about the vessels, right? There's vessels of wrath. There's vessels of mercy. Who are the vessels of mercy? And then in 24, he says, even us whom he has called, right? He is explaining who the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Who are they? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is a question that he is posing to them. Is it only the Jews? Is it only the Gentiles? And then he goes on to explain, right? The vessels of mercy that God has prepared beforehand, this is from both camps. It's from Jews. It's from Gentiles. It's from anybody on earth who believes in the Messiah, who has the faith that he has already explained and already expounded upon. And so what he's going to explain is easy for us to understand. And it's not controversial, right? We, we don't want, we don't want what the Jews thought was true. Because we're all, I mean, I assume, we're all Gentiles. In the room. If that were true, none of us would be in, in the people of God. So we're all, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm totally okay with what Paul is saying. But we recognize that Paul is writing to an audience who is not okay with this. Who doesn't understand this. Who thinks and have thought for thousands of years that God only cared about Israel. That they were his chosen nation. All of them wanted to be saved. None of the Gentiles would be saved. And this is how God was operating. And that's not true. And it's never been true. (coughs) So he wants to show, through these quotes, that this is never how God has been operating. And so he gives these two from Hosea, right? In verse 25, he says, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now the way these verses are worded, it does beg the question, why is God saying this now? Was it ever true that there were people who were not God's people? And if we think about God's people in the sense of those who are all going to be saved, I don't, like, I don't think that that's what he is talking about when he says God's people. I think he's saying there is a chosen nation. If you look back to the beginning of chapter 9, wh- how does he describe God's chosen people? 
in verse 4. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I don't see anything in this description that says they are the only ones who will receive salvation, and nobody else will. The people of God have been given the law. The people of God, this is where the prophets come from. This is, these, are the ones, these are the people who understand who God is, his law, how to worship him, how to interact with him. And what was the point of that? So that they could hide away with all this information? Did God give the law to Moses so he could take it and be like, look, we're going to hole up in the desert and we're not going to tell this to anybody else. We have God's law. We know him. We have interacted with him directly. And everyone else, good luck. Egypt, I don't know what you're doing down there, but good luck to you. Syria, you're over there. Leave us alone, and we'll leave you alone, and we're going to hang out over here by ourselves, never talk to you. That is not what God did. That was not his intention. It is not why he gave them the law to begin with. You see, we might ask the question, why didn't God just include the Gentiles from the beginning? I don't understand what's going on here. And the answer is, he did. God never pushed aside the Gentiles and said, I don't love you, I hate you, you are no, I, have, I want nothing to do with you. He said, I have chosen one group of people to give my law to, show them how to sacrifice, show them how to worship, show them who I am for the purpose of them and going and telling the entire world about this God that's been revealed to them. I know I've said this many times, but the lo- God puts them where he puts them. Because it is the highway between major northern and southern kingdoms, right? Syria and Egypt, when they're wanting to trade with each other, the thing that they do is to, is to go through Israel. How much better can you... Sh- I mean, think about the, the, the opportunity that they have to tell people about who the God of Israel is than the Syrians traveling south, and they're letting them in their home, and they're feeding them. And the, I mean, this is the perfect opportunity... To evangelize, right? We, we probably don't think about the Israelites evangelizing Syria. or I mean, but we all know the story of Jonah. What is God calling Jonah to? To evangelize a pagan Gentile nation. This is not new information. And yet somehow the Jews have read and studied for years, thousands of years, and they don't get it. They think Israel is saved Gentiles are the pagans. There's no, there's no salvation for them. Let's just hold up. Let's do our own thing. And this was never God's intention. Now, I think it's interesting to ask the question, why does God operate this way? And I think that we need to remember what we talked about last week, right? We don't go to God in an accusatory tone and be like, God, why would you do this? Why, why not just include everything? Why not just... Why just Israel? But we can go to him and say, seems interesting. Why, I wonder why God would choose Israel to do it this way instead of just revealing himself to the whole world. I mean, at that time, it wasn't that big, right? There was not, I mean, we have billions of people on the planet. I, I don't know what the population was in the time of Moses, but it wasn't billions of people. I mean, maybe a couple of million. Like, we, we see that Israel was 600,000 in the desert. So even if it was 5 million, you think, like, it, it, there's not that many people. Why not just reveal yourself to everyone? Why just Israel? And we see it. We see an answer in Jesus, I think. Right? What, what does Jesus do? Who does he spend most of his time with? Everyone? Twelve guys, right? 
And we know from reading the Gospels that these 12 guys are not the brightest in the bunch. It's not like, well, I picked the 12 smartest, most capable men to do this job. No, he just says, look, this is how I operate. When he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching to lots and lots of people. But the honed-in discipleship, right, if we come down one level, then we see that God calls the 72, right? He spends a lot of time with them, and he calls them, and he says, go and evangelize all the towns, right? So he has the masses that he brings down to 72, that he brings down to 12, and even within the 12, what do we have? There's three, right? James and John and Peter, these three are, are, get to see things that the other nine don't. And so this is how God has always operated, right? He chooses Israel, not because he hates all the other nations. He's like, look, you're going to be my representative. I give you the law. I give you all the understanding so that you can go and share it with the world. Paul is trying to communicate this to his Jewish brothers who have never understood this. So he says here in these two verses, right, those who are not my people, I will call my people. The Gentiles are in, in other words. All the people who you thought were not a part of God's people, right, now God is calling them in. The Gentiles are welcomed into salvation. Now, I, to me, there's no great mystery here, but the mystery is that not only are the Gentiles in, but some of Israel will be cast out. And the mystery lies in chapter 11. If you know Romans 11, it seems to say very clearly that all of Israel will be gathered back together. And yet right here we see Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his descendants upon the earth fully and without delay. We're not to chapter 11 yet. So we're not going to tackle that one yet. But this is, right here, it's clear, right? We're going to come to a mystery in this one day, in a couple of weeks probably. But right here we have a clear message. Only a remnant of Israel is going to be saved. So the Gentiles are in, part of them, and part of the Israelites are out. So the thing that the Jews, the reality that they had been living in for however long, is completely turned upside down. Why is this true? Verse 28. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You see, God is just. Why is it that some of the Israelites are, there's only a remnant that some of them will be cast out? Because they have not pursued righteousness by faith, which we're going to see in a minute, right? Because not all of them believe in the Messiah. God is fully just. He is not going to let anybody into heaven who is not fully justified. And the only way for that to happen is through Jesus. It's not going to happen through good works. It's not going to happen through a pursuit of the law to find your righteousness. That is an impossibility. God is fully just. He is going to fully carry out his sentence. Nobody can hide from it. Nobody. Nobody's going to be like, oh, yes, I snuck past him, right? It's not happening. The sentence will happen in perfection. So all who reject the Messiah, whether they be Jew, whether they be Gentile, will be just judged on their own merit, and they will fall short. Can you think about 
yourself trying to stand in front of God Almighty and present to him your good deeds. How laughable that is. How ridiculous and silly it would be for us to even try. And the sentence for everyone who does that is the same. You are not righteous. In and of yourself, you are not holy. You are not justified. Yeah, you might have done a few good things, but you were supposed to be perfect, and you missed. All of us missed that mark. So the sentence is carried out. This is why there is only a remnant who will be saved. Now the question this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is going to act? Or have you grown complacent? You see, it doesn't say that he's only going to carry out the sentence fully. But what is the second thing? The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This means that God's judgment is coming. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next year, maybe 50 years. I mean, none of us know. But this is a promise from the Lord that this is going to happen fully and it's going to happen without delay. Do you believe that? And really, the important question is, do you act as if you believe that? I don't know about you, but I grow complacent in my evangelism. Yeah, I can nod my head up and down. Okay, yeah, I, yes, I believe this. But my life doesn't always reflect that I believe that God is going to fully carry out this sentence and without delay. Because if my life reflected that perfectly, I would evangelize everyone with a heartbeat. And so would you, right? Because we know what the sentence is for those who don't believe. That they will spend an eternity in hell. That person that you know in your family, in your neighborhood, where you work, whatever it is, you're thinking about them, right? Put them in your head. Mentally picture that person. God's full sentence is going to land on them. You have the gospel, and he's entrusted it to you to go and to share that with those people. Do you live as if you believe that this is true? When's the last time that you shared the gospel with somebody who you know, or maybe you didn't know, a stranger at the gas station? I don't know, but when is the last time that you did it? This is supposed to sting a little bit, right? The conviction is landing on me just like it's landing on you. I promise you. I don't live my life every day as if I believe that this is true. I don't act like I know that this is true. And we should. We need to. We have to be pushed into further and further depth, into further boldness to share the gospel. Because God's sentence will be carried out fully. Everyone that doesn't believe in him will spend an eternity in hell. But the inverse is true, too. You see, the sentence that's carried out on the unbeliever is true. And the sentence that is carried out on the believer is also true. And we can take not just great comfort in this, but all of our comfort lands here. When God looks at you, if you have faith in Jesus, if you believe in him, what, does he, what is the sentence that he passes down to you? Justified. Child of God, you are welcomed into the kingdom forever, that God loves you and that you are completely forgiven of all of your sins. That sentence is true as well. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. That he would look at me and any one of you and say, yes, 
You are my child, and I, there is no condemnation for you. Not because of you, and not because of anything good that you have ever done, but because of the work of Christ. That sentence is just as true. And once again, to me, that, that is motivation. That is, because, because here's the thing, we recognize the two extremes. We know the sentence of the unbeliever, and we also know the sentence of the believer, that God is fully loving and fully kind and fully forgiving. How could we not want to share that sentence, everything that is true about who we are as Christians, with the unbeliever? Who cares if you're going to be embarrassed if they... I mean, I don't even know that it's really true that people laugh anymore. I don't know. I remember as a youth minister, I always talk about that. I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I haven't had anybody laugh in my face about sharing the gospel. But there is a real fear of rejection, right? We don't want people to think we're dumb. We don't want people to think we're uninformed or that we're naive or all of these things that, that kind of cloud our thinking. The reality is that God has given us the truth in salvation and that he has charged us to go into the world and to share that. The sentence is coming, right? God has entrusted you and me with the gospel to go and share it with the world. And now we have the final couple of verses here, which is essentially a summary of what he has been talking about throughout the chapter. So we've laid it all out there. <coughs> He's talked about all these theological ideas, and then he says, so what shall we say? And this is the definitive statement, right? He says, that he asks the question and then answers. What shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So this is his summary of everything he has been trying to tell us. The Gentiles, who are not pursuing it, got it. Why? Because God gave it to them. And the Jews, who are pursuing it for their entire life, through following the law day in and day out, they didn't receive it because they had no faith. They didn't pursue it by faith. Now there's a couple of things that are worth noticing here. The Gentiles attained righteousness even though they didn't pursue it. Now, Paul can't close it out, right, without reminding us one last time. It's not by our own effort. It's not by something that we are doing, that we are seeking him out, and then that's how it happens. <coughs> they were not pursuing it. And what's really interesting is the way that Paul describes somebody who is not pursuing God. Let's flip back to Romans chapter 1. This is a little bit depressing to realize that this is the reality of those whom we know who are not Christians. And this was our reality at one point. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. This is what it looks like to not pursue God. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. The Gentile, you and I, who were not pursuing God before God saved us, that's who we were. The fact that God would save people out of that, in and of itself, is a miracle. I mean, think of this pretty exhaustive list here, and it's pretty disturbing and unsettling list of things that we used to be when we were not pursuing God, when we were not pursuing righteousness, we were pursuing all that. And yet God has saved us out of that. Now, I, I read a little bit about this word attain because it seems kind of, I don't know, it's not dramatic enough. And, and several agreed, right? Like this word is like, I don't know, it's not, it's not really a word that I, would, that I would use to describe. Like, that's what I was, and God has saved me out of all of that, and the thing that I got was that I attained something. Um, and so I, I read a few people, and um, Charles Hodge, he described it this way, and I think this is, um, I, don't know if he's doing, I, don't, I don't know if he's doing justice to the Greek, but it sounds a whole lot better. And I, think, I don't think that it's, I, I don't think that it's, um, a, mis, a misquote, but this is what he said, that, that the Gentiles, when they were saved, they eagerly laid hold of it. That when you were that, that thing from Romans 1, all of those things, right? All of those things defined who you were, and God saved you out of that. It was more than just like, oh, thanks, I, I got this thing now. No, but that we eagerly grabbed hold of this and won't let go. When God opens our mind to how sinful we were and how much salvation he has and love to give and all of these things, it's not just, we're not going to just be passively like, oh, thank you for that. But that we eagerly grab hold of it, that we are excited about it, and that we are never, ever, ever going to let that thing go. So the Gentiles who were not pursuing it, but pursuing their sin, attained it. And in contrast, the Jews who were pursuing it, through righteousness, by works of the law, never achieved it. How is this possible? It almost doesn't even seem fair, right? We look at two people and we say, this guy is giving forth all of his effort and he falls short. And this guy over here is ignoring God and he is the one who is being saved. And the reality is, neither of them were doing good, right? Even the Jews who were pursuing righteousness weren't doing it perfectly, but here's the problem. They thought they had achieved it. They were saying to themselves, yeah, I did it. I am saved by my righteousness, by my works of the law. Haven't you seen all of the ways in which I obey God? I count my steps on the Sabbath to make sure that I don't walk too far. And they had convinced themselves that this is what was saving them. And what's really even more interesting, they thought they achieved it, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone that God laid in their path, and they don't even know it. They tripped, and they fell, and they still got up and said, ah, it's fine, I'm right. That thing that I tripped over that God laid in my path doesn't matter. They stumbled over the Messiah, and they don't even realize it. And they continue on believing that they have made themselves righteous apart from faith. 
by works of the law. Now, not only that, but they read the Old Testament. They knew it. They, the scribes and the Pharisees were not fools. They knew the scriptures better than all of us combined know the Bible, right? And they still missed it. That right there should be a caution to you and I, right? When we think we have something in our grasp, when we think we understand something, we should hold on to it pretty loosely, right? That we should allow God, that if we stumble over something, we shouldn't be like, oh, who put that rock there? God put it there. You should stop and think about it for a minute, right? If they, in all of their intelligence, in all of their dedication to study God's word, miss something this big, we have the same, the, the threat is there for us, right? We should just be careful in how we read God's word. If they could stumble and miss the stumbling altogether, so can we. Last thing I want to say is this, is that there is the possibility that an even greater evil was happening within the Jews. And that is that they read it, they knew it, they believed it, they stumbled over Jesus, and they knew who he was, and they still said no. It will cost me too much. If Jesus is actually the Messiah, no more temple. If Jesus is actually the Messiah, no more sacrifices. If Jesus is actually the Messiah, Gentiles are going to be brought in. Those filthy, unclean dogs are going to be welcomed in. I will not believe that. I read it. I see it. I see all of the signs in Jesus, but I refuse to believe it. I don't care because it costs too much. It's not that they were ignorant, or at least there is the possibility that it was not that they were ignorant. It's that they knew it and they just refused. If you were here this morning and you're saying, look, I've heard the stories. I've heard about Jesus and I've heard the gospel and I've heard all of these things, but you don't understand what you're asking me to give up. I might lose my job. I might lose my family, my entire world. All of my friends will disown me if I bow the knee to Jesus. And the answer is, it's worth it. No matter what God asks you to give up, it's worth giving that up and more in order to follow after Christ. To receive the blessing, to receive all of the gifts of God. Be willing to give up everything. There is nothing on this planet that is worth holding on to if it's going to stand between you and Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We are so grateful your word and we are so grateful for the truth that we find in it lord we we stand before you humbly that there are many places that we don't understand in our finite thinking and in our logic we just can't quite come to terms with things and we're trying to figure these things out lord i pray that you would help us i pray that you would help us remember this message and then in a couple of weeks when we look at chapter 11 lord how do these things go together we know that your word doesn't contradict. We need your help to understand.
ask that if there is someone here this morning who sees the truth, who recognizes the truth, but is just not willing to give up, whatever it is, a relationship, a lifestyle, a way of understanding the world, because they know that if they come to you, they might have to give these things up. Lord, they're saying, it's just too much. The cost is too much. Lord, help them to see that it's not. It is worth bowing the knee to you in order to be saved. Or that there is nothing in this world that can even come close to being in your presence, to being called a son or daughter, to be a part of your family. Father, we are grateful that you have done this for us. And we are grateful for your word that makes it clear that even though you chose Israel, you have welcomed Gentiles in, that you have welcomed in everyone and anyone who has faith in you. That is the only barrier. Do we believe? Do we trust in you? Father, thank you for this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.